welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Shooter, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 108, The Perils of Proton Pump Inhibitors, Part 1. Proton Pump Inhibitors, or PPIs, are a class of medicines that include Nexium, Somac, Pariet, Prilosec, Maxor, and Prevacid, and many generics. These drugs, which drastically reduce the secretion of hydrochloric acid by the stomach, are among the best-selling pharmaceuticals of all time. Australians are enthusiastic participants in the global acid-suppressing pill-popping party. In the 2022-23 financial year, two proton pump inhibitors, pantoprazole or Somac and ezomeprazole or Nexium, were the third and fourth most commonly prescribed drugs with nearly 19 million prescriptions issued in a population of 26 million. While 15% of Australians over 18 had at least one pharmaceutical benefit scheme or PBS prescription for a PPI medicine dispensed in one year, that rate is 47% for people aged 75 years and over. Since conditions that decrease the secretion of stomach acid, such as atrophic gastritis, become more common as people age, this means that a significant proportion of elderly people who already have reduced gastric acid secretion are taking drugs that further suppress their ability to make stomach acid. PPIs are only indicated for short-term use, four to eight weeks, for most patients, and yet 38% of people aged 75 years and over had four or more prescriptions dispensed per year, indicating long-term use in a significant proportion of elderly people. And the usage data that I've quoted do not include PPIs purchased over-the-counter, that is, without a doctor's prescription. The first PPI was authorised for over-the-counter sale in 2015, and most PPIs are now available over-the-counter in Australia, albeit with only a seven-day supply and higher costs than PBS prescriptions. I've written about proton pump inhibitors in several other posts, including the purple pill that kills, acid suppressors and antibiotics increase allergic disease, drugs and gut bugs, and depressing drugs. And I've included links to all of those articles in the post accompanying this podcast episode. But with ever more studies on the dangers of PPIs appearing in the medical literature, I thought it was high time to pull together everything you need to know about this class of drugs into one mini-series so that you can make an informed decision about whether to continue taking one if you're already on it or to start taking one if it's been prescribed for you. In part one of this mini-series, we'll look at how PPIs work, what they're supposed to be used for, and what is known about the extent of their overuse and inappropriate use. In part two, we'll examine the known and suspected adverse effects of PPIs and why they might occur. And part three, we'll cover how to stop taking PPIs safely and how you might go about repairing any damage they may have caused. PPIs, the basics. One, how do they work? Let's start with a mechanism of action of PPIs. They block a critical chemical reaction that is required for the parietal cells of the stomach to release acid, resulting in up to 99% inhibition of acid secretion. When taking a PPI, the pH of the stomach, which is normally between 1.5 and 3.5, will be higher than 4, that is dramatically less acidic, or the other way of putting that would be more alkaline than normal, for most of the day. Two. 
What conditions are they prescribed for? Tissues in the upper gut that have become damaged by an inflammatory reaction, for example, erosive gastritis due to an overgrowth of Helicobacter pylori in the stomach, or regurgitation of the acidic stomach contents into the esophagus, are able to heal when acid secretion is suppressed by PPIs. Hence, PPIs are recommended for short-term use, again that's 4-8 to eight weeks, for the treatment of peptic ulcers, that's ulcers in the stomach and or the duodenum, as part of triple therapy for eradication of Helicobacter pylori and for healing erosive esophagitis. In the real world though, by far the most common reason for a PPI prescription is the relief of the upper gastrointestinal symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux disorders, abbreviated as GORD in Australia and England, or GOOD for our American cousins. However, according to Primary Health Tasmania, only around one-third of people with GORD have erosive disease. Of these, approximately 70% had complete healing after taking a PPI for only four weeks, and 85% had complete healing by eight weeks. But for the remaining two-thirds of patients with non-erosive gourd, also called endoscopy-negative reflux disease, the net remission rate for heartburn symptoms is only 29%. That is, if you are one of the roughly 70% of people who suffers reflux but doesn't have erosions in the lining of your upper gut, taking a PPI may give you temporary symptom relief, but it's highly unlikely to leave you any better off. This is why clinical practice guidelines do not recommend these drugs for treatment of simple gourd. The only valid indications for long-term use of PPIs are 1. Barrett's esophagus, that's precancerous changes in the esophagus, usually due to long-term gourd, 2. Symptom management for severe esophagitis, esophageal stricture, and or esophageal scleroderma, 3. Those at a high risk of gastrointestinal ulceration, for example due to taking long-term non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or oral bisphosphonates, which are prescribed for low bone mineral density or osteoporosis, 4. Healing and relapse prevention in patients with Helicobacter pylori associated disease where eradication therapy has failed or is contraindicated. 5. Healing and or prevention of ulcers in patients with Zollinger-Ellenson syndrome. 6. Gastronoma. And 7. Symptom management and prevention of complications in patients with gourd who have frequent significant symptoms that are not controlled by lower doses of PPIs or intermittent doses of PPIs. But even though the vast majority of Australians taking one of these drugs does not have any of the valid indications for long-term use that I've just listed, the average duration of PPI therapy is 3.8 years. 3. What is the extent of overuse and inappropriate use? Studies of PPI use both within Australia and internationally have consistently found quote, good evidence that they are overused, that opportunities for lifestyle interventions are not maximised, and that many people are inappropriately using PPI medicines for long periods of time, end quote. And that quote was from the third Australian Atlas of Healthcare Variation, Chapter 2.3, Proton Pump Inhibitor Medicines Dispensing 18 Years and Over. In fact, despite multiple programs to educate doctors and patients on the correct use of these drugs, up to 84% of PPIs are inappropriately used, meaning that they are either prescribed without a valid medical reason, used for too long, or used at the wrong dose. I certainly see this in my own practice. I have seen dozens of clients who have been on a PPI for months to years without any of the valid indications that I listed previously. 
My own mother was on a PPI for many years until my repeated insistence that her GP review her medications finally bore fruit, but that only happened after she had suffered fractures of her pelvis and femur. We'll be talking more about fractures and PPIs in part two. My observation is that if you walk into a doctor's office complaining of just about any symptom of gut distress, from excess burping and farting to bloating, you're likely to walk out with a prescription for a PPI. But what's the big deal about taking a PPI if you don't need it? After all, since practically all of them are available over the counter in Australia, surely they must be pretty safe, right? Wrong. In part two of this series, we'll survey the literature on adverse effects of PPIs and what is known and suspected about why they occur. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.